Support for this podcast provided by Wisconsin Historical Society Press, proud publishers of Madison in the 60s by Stuart Levitin, an absorbing and evocative account of 10 years that changed the city forever. To order Madison in the 60s and other beautiful books that share our state's centuries-long history and culture in service to the mission of the Wisconsin Historical Society, visit wisconsinhistory.org slash whspress. Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Well, it's that most wonderful time of the year. That's right, it's time for the Wisconsin Book Festival. And our guest today is one of the featured presenters, University of Wisconsin professor Chad Allen Goldberg, editor of an important new volume, Education for Democracy, Renewing the Wisconsin Idea. It's from our very good friends at the University of Wisconsin Press. Professor Goldberg will be giving a talk on his book live and in person at the Madison Central Library on Saturday, October 23rd. So I thought it would be a good idea to dial up an encore presentation of our conversation from this past March. By the way, our show next week will also feature another UW professor giving an in-person presentation on the 23rd, Professor Jordan Ellenberg, talk about his bestseller, Shape. According to Wisconsin Statute 36.01 sub 2, the mission of the University of Wisconsin system is, quote, to develop human resources, to discover and disseminate knowledge, to extend knowledge and its application beyond the boundaries of its campuses, and to serve and stimulate society by developing in students heightened intellectual, cultural, and humane sensitivities scientific, professional, and technical expertise, and a sense of purpose. Inherent in this broad mission are methods of instruction, research, extended training, and public service designed to educate people and improve the human condition. Basic to every purpose of the system is the search for truth. But not everyone agrees with that mission, especially the parts about public service, improving the human condition, and searching for truth. And over the years, some people in high places have sought to change that mission in fundamental ways, even destroy it outright, leaving us with some very important questions. What is the role of the public university in a democratic society? Specifically, what is the role of the University of Wisconsin in the democratic pluralistic society of the 21st century? And harking back to the words of UW President Charles Van Hise from 1905, does the beneficent influence of the university continue to reach every family in the state? If not, how do we ensure that it once again does? These are the questions Chad Allen Goldberg asks in Education for Democracy, questions he and his 11 contributors answer by examining how and why the Wisconsin idea was born, expanded, honored, and then threatened and diminished. And they explain why it must be renewed and suggest how to do so. The list of these contributors is quite a collection of scholars and analysts, including Professor Catherine Kramer, author of The Politics of Resentment, environmental historian and biographer of Aldo Leopold, Kurt Meine, our friend, repeat guest, and LGBTQ historian, Dick Wagner, Wisconsin Public Radio's Emily Auerbach, and several other distinguished professors, both from the University of Wisconsin and elsewhere. Professor Goldberg is very well equipped to edit this volume, which is based on an outreach course on the Wisconsin idea, which he helped organize in 2016, and which he still teaches as professor of sociology. And it was Professor Goldberg who, in May 2016, wrote the resolution, which the faculty senate adopted, expressing no confidence and the commitment by then-President Ray Cross and the Board of Regents to defend the Wisconsin idea, which was under attack by Governor Scott Walker and the Republican legislature. Professor Goldberg's previous books include Modernity and the Jews in Western Social Thought and Citizens and Paupers, Relief, Rights, and Race from the Freedmen's Bureau to Workfare. And on a personal note, Chad and I are both graduates of a small school now known as New College, the Honors College of Florida, where I believe our respective graduating classes 
were smaller than the class roster of his Survey of Sociology course. Thankfully, Ray Cross and Scott Walker are both gone, and Professor Chad Allen Goldberg is still here. It was a pleasure to welcome him to Mass and Bookbeat and to present him for you again today. Thank you so much, Stuart. Uh, I really appreciate the invitation to join you today. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Well, I appreciate uh, your being here, and I very much appreciate the book, which taught me a lot about the history and the state and the future of the Wisconsin idea. Do we have Scott Walker to thank for this book? <laughs> yeah, in some ways we do. Uh, you know, when I've talked about this book uh, with other folks, I sometimes say uh, that, um, you know, just as uh, when Walker was governor, I would hear labor organizers say that Scott Walker should get organizer uh, of the year award because uh, he inspired so much labor organizing. Uh, in a similar kind of way, uh, you know, he, he is, uh, if, there, if I had to name one person who was uh, more responsible for this book than any other, it would have to be Scott Walker because a lot of what he was doing and not just alone, but uh, with uh, a lot of help uh, from uh, Republican legislators and, uh, uh, and others in the state was the impetus for this book. This book was in many ways a reaction uh, to what was going on. Most Wisconsinites have some kind of vague recollection that the Wisconsin idea is the outgrowth of Charles Van Huys's address in 1905 that he shall, quote, never be content until the beneficent influence of the university reaches every family in the state, which he said would make us the first perfect state university. You put some operational meat on that visionary skeleton. What is your fuller definition of the Wisconsin idea and what are the other necessary institutional pillars besides the university? I would say, uh, first of all, that my own understanding of the Wisconsin idea is indebted to a lot of uh, other scholars and colleagues. Um, the historian David Hutler, uh, who's one of the contributors to the volume, was one of them. His uh, outstanding book on uh, John Bascom and the Wisconsin idea was a, a one important source of my understanding. Gwen Drury, a scholar who has written and spoken extensively about the Wisconsin idea, is another source. And uh, you'll see that I draw on those in the introduction to the book. I would distinguish, as, as others have done, a, a kind of narrow definition of the Wisconsin idea and a broader political definition. So the narrow definition uh, has to do with uh, the university's public service mission. It's uh, service to the state and to the people of the state. This is often what we think of when we, when we think about the Wisconsin idea. We think about it in connection with the university. But of course, uh, if you uh, familiarize yourself with the history uh, around Wisconsin progressivism in the early 20th century and the origins of the Wisconsin idea, you soon find out that it did have a broader political meaning. And uh, when Charles McCarthy wrote his uh, book on the Wisconsin idea in 1912, he was using it in a little bit different sense. He basically used it as a kind of shorthand to summarize all of the uh, various uh, ameliorative or reform activities of Wisconsin progressives in the early 20th century. So that uh, included the work that the university was doing, but went uh, well beyond it. And uh, many of your listeners will know that uh, Wisconsin was a leader in progressive legislation and um, policy and reforms in the early 20th century. And uh, that's really what people like McCarthy had in mind by the Wisconsin idea. Theodore Roosevelt, writing the preface for McCarthy's book in 1912, also had that broader definition in mind. So uh, for me, what's interesting about the Wisconsin idea is how these two meanings are connected. And one of the things that I would argue is that the narrower definition having to do with the university service can't really be uh, separated uh, fully from that broader political dimension. And that raises all kinds of questions about uh, the role of the university in politics, its relation to politics and so on. Lastly, I would emphasize uh, the democratic dimension of the Wisconsin idea, which is something that uh, I learned from Quinterary. The University of Wisconsin is not the only public university or land-grant university to have a kind of public service mission or orientation. And um, Gwen has argued, and I, uh, I think that she's right, I would argue the same, uh, that one of the things that has distinguished Wisconsin's approach to that was that uh, for the University of Wisconsin, this was a, a democratic vision. So uh, the great uh, University of Wisconsin historian, Frederick Jackson Turner, wrote about the university's service to democracy. And that's why the book is called Education for Democracy. We think that there is an important link between democracy and the Wisconsin idea, and that there's an important link between this uh, sort of a more narrow meaning of the university's uh, service and the broader meaning of social reform and political reform, uh, stretching back to the progressive era in the early 20th century. Is the Wisconsin idea inherently progressive? Can you have a conservative version of it? Well, that's a good question. And I think 
there would probably be some disagreement among the, uh, among the volumes contributors about that question. I think a lot hinges on what you mean by conservative. So I think that the Wisconsin idea implies and presupposes a set of philosophical tenets, let's say. Uh, I write about those in the introduction to the book. One of those is what the historian Stephen Bunker has called a commonwealth model of society, uh, which involves the idea that there is a a kind of common good or a public interest, which transcends the um, interest of particular groups or individuals in society, that it, it is best achieved through the enlightened cooperation of public institutions, including the state government uh, and the university with other actors in the state, with notions like social investment, with uh, recognizing the role of professional expertise, but also at the same time working hard to ensure that democratic decision-making is not subordinated to professional expertise. Those are all, I would say, part of the Wisconsin idea. It's history and meaning. To the extent that conservatives are able to uh, assent to at least some version of those tenets, I think uh, one could say uh, they're not excluded from the Wisconsin idea. They can be proponents of the Wisconsin idea as well. That said, I think it's also uh, interesting that uh, the attacks on the Wisconsin idea in recent years and decades have come from the political right. So there's a very explicit and very self-conscious right-wing or conservative critique of the Wisconsin idea that was developed by people like Michael Joyce, uh, who led the Bradley Foundation uh, from 1985 to 2001, uh, and Thomas Leonard, who's a researcher at Princeton University who's written a book criticizing the legacy of progressives uh, drawing attention to uh, some of the connections of some of those thinkers with ideas that we would certainly want to reject today, the progressives would want to reject today uh, around race uh, and uh, other forms of uh, scribed inequality. So we have to deal with that aspect as well. Maybe not all conservatives would agree with Joyce and Leonard, uh, but it is, I think, noteworthy that the explicit criticisms and attacks on the Wisconsin idea have been uh, from the right. I think the, at, speaking of Michael Joyce, from the Bradley Foundation, I think the absolute favorite thing I learned from your book or from your introduction was that his attack on government experts mimicked criticism that the European anarchists like Mikhail Bakunin were making a hundred years ago. It is a sort of interesting uh, connection and uh, even in some way an irony because I, I doubt that he would have had much sympathy for somebody like Bakunin. Which indicates, of course, that there has also been some critique of the Wisconsin idea and its concepts from the far left that perhaps the most relevant criticism today because it's from the people in power is from the right, but there's also been some interesting criticism of it from the left. Yeah, I think uh, even, even when the criticism hasn't always been uh, as explicit or as um, uh, easy to find as the criticism of the right, you can often at least infer what those kinds of criticisms would be. In the introduction to the book, I talk a little bit about what some of those lines of criticism might look like. So one of them, I think, would be very skeptical that the university uh, and the state government could play the role that uh, early 20th century progressives wanted it to. So there is, a, a, I think, um, a certain amount of skepticism among radicals that this approach could actually uh, bear fruit. And so there's a suspicion that this is a kind of fig leaf. It's a kind of ideological cover for uh, functions or activities that the university and the state do, uh, which in fact, from their point of view, we should be uh, staunchly opposed to. And then there's a, another line of criticism, which uh, we also talk, uh, touch on in the book. I, I would take more seriously, which I think is a, a more challenging kind of criticism that proponents of the Wisconsin idea really have to face head on. And that has to do, of course, with the sort of blind spots, the exclusions and marginalizations that were part of the early vision uh, more than a century ago. So uh, historians have shown that opponents, the architects of the Wisconsin idea in, their, in the early 20th century, including Van Hise, whom you mentioned, sometimes endorsed views about uh, race, about gender, about eugenics that we would find very troubling today, including uh, all of the proponents of the Wisconsin idea that I know of today would reject these views, but it's it's a part of that history, and it's something that uh, that we have to acknowledge and we have to deal with, I think. John Commons was such an anti-Semite that he insisted on having dinners Friday nights so that Celie Perlman couldn't attend them. We're yeah. talking with, with Chad Allen Goldberg. His book is Education for Democracy, Renewing the Wisconsin Idea. It's a wonderful book for the University of Wisconsin Press, very important and relevant in today's discussion. The essay by Mario Gard Ewell, who's the daughter of Robert Gard, very important figure in the history of arts at the University of Wisconsin. And she makes some really interesting and important 
points about the importance of arts outreach. The fact that John Stuart Curry was hired as the first visual artist in residence in a university community and was not in the arts department, but in the ag department. And the, the tremendous story she tells about the role her father played with the, with the help of Leonard Bernstein in getting the NEA to support rural arts councils. Talk a bit about the importance of arts outreach in the Wisconsin idea. Yeah, this is a really terrific chapter. I mean, all of the chapters are terrific, but uh, this is a really a wonderful chapter uh, that, as you say, is focused on uh, university extension work in the arts. And uh, I think it's, it's especially important to, to know this history, to learn about this history today, because of course, uh, this, is, this is the kind of activity uh, that in recent years, uh, uh, a number of powerful and prominent politicians have questioned to what extent uh, this is something that should be publicly supported. Uh, there have been attempts to uh, move uh, the university away from the arts, uh, from uh, humanities more generally, uh, toward uh, the STEM fields, uh, to uh, presumably, supposedly, to train people uh, where jobs are available. Um, this kind of activity is considered uh, frivolous or not worthy of public support and public funding. And I think Mario Gardewell's chapter really shows how wrong that is. Uh, and uh, the value, the social value of the arts extension work that the university has, has done over decades. Uh, and um, she does a really nice job of showing how that has affected people's lives, how it's uh, enriched people's lives. Uh, but also, uh, again, going back to this theme of democracy, which is so central to the book, uh, the way that this was done in a really democratic spirit, that was one of the things that struck me about um, her contribution to this book. So it was not just uh, some uh, extension people from the university going out into rural communities and saying, uh, you know, you, you should really uh, appreciate uh, um, Manet or Van Gogh, uh, but this was uh, an attempt to actually get people involved in arts production and making their own art and learning to appreciate art uh, from that perspective as well. And so what she shows, I think, very well in that chapter um, is uh, the role that uh, university extension played in dispelling the misconception First of all, that uh, art is a, is a purview of elites. So it's, it's not something for ordinary people, for ordinary folks. And secondly, uh, that this is um, something frivolous and uh, uh, not a valuable or, or socially useful part of what the university does. She, uh, in this chapter, I think dispels both of these uh, misconceptions uh, very effectively. So does this show that the state of the Wisconsin idea is important beyond the boundaries of the state of Wisconsin? Absolutely. Uh, this is one, uh, one issue that uh, I, I had a lot of discussions uh, with um, Gwen Walker about. Gwen Walker at that time was uh, an executive editor for the University of Wisconsin Press, and she was involved in commissioning this book. And uh, Gwen and I agreed uh, that uh, this should not be a parochial book. Uh, um, people who live in Wisconsin are justifiably proud of the traditions of the state, are, are, are justifiably proud of the fact that the Wisconsin idea is a Wisconsin idea. But it was always an idea that had a, a broader relevance, a broader applicability. And that was true because the problems that um, Wisconsin reformers were uh, wrestling with in the early 20th century were not unique uh, to Wisconsin. There were similar problems uh, that uh, other uh, people in other states were also dealing with. Um, they, I would say they were not unique to that time either. And um, also in the early 20th century, the architects and proponents of the Wisconsin idea um, they themselves were not isolated from what was going on uh, in the rest of the country and indeed in the rest of the world. Uh, uh, many of them, most of them had some kinds of ties uh, to national and international uh, circles of progressive thought and political reform uh, and were called upon uh, to do national service as well, to serve on national commissions, for instance. Uh, and uh, you see that in the history of the Wisconsin idea. And I think uh, it remains something that um, uh, uh, is certainly something that we're fighting for here in Wisconsin to uh, preserve uh, and to renew the Wisconsin idea. Uh, but also, I think our struggles uh, have something to say uh, to people outside of Wisconsin. It speaks uh, to their situations as well, because of course, uh, other states, other places are facing uh, aggressive attacks on public universities, uh, aggressive attempts to reshape public universities, and um, really aggressive attempts to roll back uh, many of the uh, the social uh, achievements of the progressive era, the New Deal era, and the Great Society. So 
there is there is something I think that is uh, very much relevant uh, in this book and about the Wisconsin idea to people outside of Wisconsin. The Wisconsin idea has also had a direct impact on the city of Madison. Members of, of the faculty have served on the Common Council. They've served on various technical boards, you know, for a hundred years. So it's it's been from from the micro to the macro. How critical is academic freedom to the continued vitality and success of the Wisconsin idea? Yeah, I think it's absolutely essential for the Wisconsin idea. And uh, this is a, an element of the Wisconsin idea that I think David Hovler, uh, one of the contributors to this volume, has, has uh, done a lot to underscore uh, the central role that it's played. And of course, uh, many of your listeners will know the sort of key uh, stories uh, about uh, Richard Ailey, who was an uh, uh, economics professor at the University of Wisconsin uh, at the turn of the century. Uh, he was uh, somebody who got into hot water around that time. Uh, he was accused of promoting uh, socialism and uh, labor unions at a time when uh, those things uh, were not very popular. Of course, in some circles, they're still not very popular. Uh, and uh, he got into some hot water. Uh, the regents uh, were uh, called upon to investigate. Uh, there was the possibility uh, that he would be prevented from carrying on his activities at the university. Perhaps uh, the university would fire him. Uh, and of course, the outcome, as we know, the regents exonerated him uh, and what became a very famous report, or at least a report with a very famous statement, famous because it's emblazoned and uh, a bronze plaque on Bascom Hall on the university campus to this day, uh, that uh, at the great state university of Wisconsin, uh, the, the uh, board of regents was committed to that uh, fearless sifting and winnowing without which uh, we, we cannot find the truth, we cannot identify the truth. And so importantly, they were not necessarily defending uh, Ely's ideas. Uh, they didn't necessarily agree with the substance of what he was saying, uh, but what they were defending was uh, his freedom, his academic freedom to pursue the truth uh, and to ask questions and to, to pursue it wherever it led him, however unpopular his conclusions might be. Uh, and this is of course also connected um, with the other components of the Wisconsin idea. So uh, the, the faculty's involvement uh, in, in public service, which you mentioned both at the city level, but also at the state level. So another element of the Wisconsin idea was um, uh, faculty lending their expertise to state government uh, and, and uh, in an attempt to uh, uh, improve government and legislation. And of course, uh, uh, yet another component or aspect was uh, public outreach, importantly uh, extension, which we've mentioned uh, just a moment ago. Um, and uh, research to help solve problems that were of concern to um, Wisconsin citizens. Faculty and staff at the university cannot do those things, cannot carry out uh, the, the service components uh, of the Wisconsin idea, cannot serve uh, the people of the state, cannot serve democracy without academic freedom. Uh, academic freedom is not a privilege, but it's actually a prerequisite uh, for uh, the kind of sifting and winnowing um, that allows us to find creative solutions uh, to the problems that we face. Finding creative solutions to the problems we face, of course, is the hallmark of listener-sponsored community radio. And we can't thank you enough for how your support got us through that very tough pandemic year of 2020, providing the resources so that we could equip more than 100 home studios so our volunteers could provide you with new programming, even while the station was closed. Now we wanna build on that success with high quality microphones for the studios, secure servers to safeguard our archives, paid internships for minority journalists, and much more. Your call to 256-2001 or your online visit to wartfm.org will help us do just that. Thank you. So how much damage did eight years of Scott Walker, his regents and the Republican legislature do to academic freedom and by extension, the Wisconsin idea? So I think uh, the damage was significant. Um, I would say, uh, and, and you know, this, this is uh, something that uh, I think many Republicans would agree with, uh, many conservatives would agree with. I would say that Scott Walker was a transformational governor in this state. Uh, he uh, backed uh, and uh, uh, was able to implement with the support of uh, uh, the state legislature a number of uh, really radical changes in the state, uh, rolling back a longstanding um, arrangements and policies. Uh, and um, the university, of course, was not the only uh, target of uh, those, those changes, but it was one of the targets. And, and I think in many ways, even though Scott Walker is gone, even though he's no longer governor, I think... Uh, 
there are others in the state who are still promoting his agenda. You began our discussion today by talking about his attempt to rewrite the university mission statement in 2015. He, of course, did not succeed. There was a public outcry when he tried to take out uh, those, those important lines about the search for truth and improving the human condition. He wanted to focus much more narrowly on workforce development. Later on, he said it was a drafting error. It was just a mistake. But the important thing is that that effort was prevented. And that was good. That was a victory, I think, for people who care uh, deeply about the Wisconsin idea. But uh, of course, Walker and uh, the people who thought like him didn't stop there. So I think uh, the legislature and the regents that Walker appointed and uh, former UW system president Ray Cross, I think they uh, continued to promote his agenda for a, a radical transformation of the university by other means, certainly by uh, deep uh, budget cuts to defund the university, by uh, legislation that uh, weakened tenure, that first took it out of state statute and then put it in the hands of Walker-appointed regents who uh, watered it down and weakened it by efforts to really vitiate uh, the sharing of university governance among faculty, staff, and students. So this is, all of these things are, are connected with the attacks on academic freedom that we saw in the Walker years uh, when legislators, for example, would uh, take issue with research that uh, they didn't like because it was uh, it didn't support their, their policy agenda or that it raised doubts about effectiveness of the policies that they were pursuing. Uh, if, the, if the research didn't support the party line, uh, they didn't want it uh, to be promoted, they didn't want it to be publicized, they didn't want it to be done. So there was a kind of, I think, chilling effect at that time. Fortunately, we have a governor now who has a very different vision of education, of course, is um, somebody who respects academic freedom. But I think the damage was, was done and to some extent continues to be done, again, by legislators and by others who uh, remain committed to Walker's agenda, even though he's gone. When the most powerful legislator in the Capitol says he doesn't care about research into the mating habits of whatever, it, it's a bad sign. Until you explain, you know, this research can actually save a multi-billion dollar industry in Wisconsin. So, you know, maybe once they understand the economic impact of the research, uh, they'll come around, but it, it takes a lot of doing. This is a very interesting sort of um, incident because it, it raises a, a kind of a philosophical question about why the public supports research. Why should uh, the public support and pay for research that's done at the university? And uh, I've had a sort of discussion, sometimes a debate uh, with friends and colleagues about this. And uh, I think uh, uh, at the heart of the Wisconsin idea was always the notion that um, the public should, should support research because it's socially useful in some way. And I agree with that. And I think, I think Robin Voss would also agree with that. The difference, I think, is that uh, there are people like uh, Robin Voss who have a very narrow vision of what counts as useful or what could be useful. And what you're pointing to, I think, with this incident is that we need a much more expansive, much more encompassing notion of uh, what counts as socially useful. So I, I'm not among the people who, who think that universities generate knowledge for its own sake. I, I do think that knowledge, I'm, I'm a pragmatist, and the, I think that knowledge uh, is a tool for problem solving. And so in some way, it does have to be socially useful. But I take strong issue with uh, very narrow definitions of what counts as useful. And as Kurt Meine points out in his chapter, the work of Aldo Leopold was all about improving game management. It was imp improve animal husbandry. It was to improve the operational farms. And there's a wonderful picture that, you, that he includes of Aldo Leopold out in the community talking to farmers on their farm showing both the application of research and the outreach. And that one picture really embodies two of the, two of the pillars of the Wisconsin idea. Yeah, Minus Chapter is, a, is another great contribution to the book. Uh, it's, I, I think, um, important to, to remember that there was a connection between conservationism and the Wisconsin idea. Charles Van Hise was one of the, the key figures who connected movements with those ways of thinking. Uh, Kurt Minus Chapter, uh, I think, really explores those, those connections over time. Again, it has a kind of connection to the democracy theme because one of his questions in that chapter is whether and how democratic institutions could be used to address the kinds of problems that conservationism uh, drew attention to in the early 20th century, that sort of reckless uh, destruction of natural resources in the state of Wisconsin, uh, particularly the destruction of the forests in northern Wisconsin. But that picture that, you're, that you mentioned, I think, uh, I think you're right that this in many ways um, encapsulates the Wisconsin idea because 
Here's Otto Leopold talking to farmers and the state. They're literally on an equal level. I mean, it's not that Otto Leopold is up on a sort of soapbox or sort of, you know, standing in a lecture hall talking down to them. They're, they're talking at equal level. And one of the things that uh, I think Kurt uh, and other contributors to the, the book have emphasized um, is, the, is the importance of a kind of two-way flow of communication between people like Otto Leopold, who had uh, some kind of expertise that they wanted to share with the public, and members of the public who had um, who had certain knowledge, practical knowledge of their own about the activities in which they were involved in. Here's an instance in which, rather than sort of an expert coming in and telling farmers, here's what you got to do, um, there's an exchange of information, there's an exchange of views, there's a real dialogue there, uh, in which I think probably both Leopold and the farmers come away with a broader, more expanded understanding of the ecosystem that they are part of and that they are, that they have shared concern about. Uh, so it's, it's a very nice image. It's a very striking image. Another point that Kurt Miney makes in his chapter is how so many of the early UW presidents were also eminent scientists. Uh, Tom Chamberlain and Ben Heise were eminent geologists. E.A. Burgey was a very prominent limnologist. Of course, Ray Cross has been an educationist. How important was it to the development of the scientific aspect of the Wisconsin idea that the university was in fact led by scientists. Yeah, I, I think uh, very much so. I mean, it's it's uh, you know what you see today uh, is uh, you know among some uh, powerful decision makers is the idea uh, that uh, leaders of universities actually don't need to be scientists, don't need to be scholars at all. Uh, but in fact, maybe it's better uh, that if you, you would pick somebody who has a business background, who's an outsider to the university, you could come in and shake things up. And uh, I think the history of the Wisconsin idea suggests uh, a different perspective, um, that it's actually uh, really valuable to have somebody who's uh, a respected scientist and scholar leading the university. Certainly, they will be able to mobilize the support of the faculty and staff better, but also they have an understanding of the university, the way it works, of its mission. They have an understanding of scholarship, of uh, the scientific method. Uh, all of these things, I think, uh, are important prerequisites for university leadership. And I think those qualities and that knowledge served those early university presidents quite well, uh, both in the way that they related to uh, faculty and students, uh, but also in the way that they represented them, the university uh, to, uh, to legislators, to politicians, to the general public, and so on. You point out in your essay an inherent internal tension, raising the question, how do you incorporate professional expertise in decision-making in a way that doesn't subordinate democracy to the experts? Is there a conflict between the power of experts and the power of the people? I think this is one of maybe three tensions, which I would say are kind of endemic to the Wisconsin idea. And uh, so I, I don't think this is a kind of seamless, kind of completely coherent notion that doesn't make it any less valuable. Any important uh, political social idea is gonna have those kinds of internal tensions. This is a major one within the Wisconsin idea. And I'm not sure that anybody's ever fully resolved this tension in a satisfactory way. I think it is important that people are aware of this tension and that they wrestle with that tension. And you see that come up in uh, several of the chapters in the book. Uh, the contributors address that in various ways. I think it suggests different ways to, to try to manage this tension. I, I doubt that it can be completely overcome or transcended, but I do think it can be managed. One of the ways that uh, I think contributors have, have, have suggested doing that um, is to make sure that we avoid a kind of uh, one-way, top-down model of communication between experts and the public in favor of uh, a more kind of dialogical model, a two-way flow of communication between, between uh, experts at the university, experts on various uh, subjects that they've studied, uh, and people outside of the university who have important uh, knowledge of their own about the fields of activity that they're involved in. So I think that's at least a start in terms of uh, trying to make sure that while we recognize the, the necessity and the importance of expertise in solving complex problems today, we also are careful not to subordinate uh, democratic decision-making to the experts. They need to adopt the Aldo Leopold model and go out and talk with the people, not at them. Precisely. We're talking with UW professor Chad Allen Goldberg, editor of the new book, Education for Democracy, Renewing the Wisconsin Idea. In 1996, then governor Tommy G. Thompson created the Blue Ribbon Commission on 21st Century Jobs, which proposed a new Wisconsin idea for the 21st century. 
focusing on, quote, innovative learning opportunities should be available to all Wisconsin citizens in a seamless manner throughout their lives, wherever they may be. Was that just an innocuous rebranding or was there something more sinister or devious at work? I would say that there, there was something problematic about uh, how that commission was put together, how their work was construed and this uh, new Wisconsin idea that was forward at the time. And I think there's even, uh, it's not too much of a stretch to say that there is, there is even some thread connecting that new Wisconsin idea of the 1990s to Scott Walker's attempt to change the university admission statement in 2015. The problem here, I think, with the new Wisconsin idea uh, is that it, it narrowed the scope of the Wisconsin idea. So the, the charge for the commission was to think uh, specifically and exclusively about the role of the university in improving the economy uh, in the state of Wisconsin. That in itself is not a problem. That's, I think, something that uh, we'd want the university to be involved in and part of. I think uh, very few people would disagree with that. What was troubling about that was that the the, the scope was uh, limited to that and that alone. What the uh, commission really stressed was the work that the university could do in terms of workforce development in the state. The commission had the idea that uh, the state faced a kind of mismatch. Uh, so that the people of the state didn't have the right skills for the jobs that they expected to emerge in the 21st century. And so they thought that the university should play a role in uh, workforce development. And that's what they focused on. Now, uh, again, I, I want to be careful here because I certainly don't want to be misunderstood. I don't, uh, I, I would not say, uh, and I've never said that the university shouldn't be concerned with preparing students uh, for their future careers and future jobs. I think that is certainly a key reason uh, why young people go to college in the first place. And I think it's something that the public can rightly expect the university to be involved in. My concern about this, again, was that in focusing so exclusively on workforce development, the Commission's new Wisconsin idea actually left out a lot of other things that the university does to serve democracy, to serve the public, and to be socially useful. And in the process ends up devaluing those things such that anything that doesn't fall under the, the heading of workforce development and can't be justified in those terms then looks like a bad use of public resources. I would say that what Walker tried to do later on uh, was a more extreme or more radical kind of version. There were some progressive aspects of uh, that uh, commission report. Walker uh, sort of uh, just uh, dispensed with those. He, he sort of uh, shed those. And uh, so it became a kind of more hard-edged version of that uh, in, in Walker's administration. When do you date the real threats to the Wisconsin? Karen Bogenschneider's essay on Then and Now points out that as long ago as 1992, there's a faculty member writing an essay, Who Killed the Wisconsin Idea? And he pointed out that it was in 1962 that the UW extension was restructured. Personally, I think the late 60s did a lot of damage between the campus and the Capitol and the Republicans in charge like Harold Freilich were just adopted an antagonism towards the university that has lingered for two generations. When do you date the decline in state government support for the Wisconsin idea and a lack of dedication within the campus itself to preserving it? Yeah, I, I think it has been a kind of periodic or recurring challenge, uh, actually. So I, I wouldn't say that there's a, a certain point at which uh, things all go downhill. I, I had an interesting conversation with a PhD student in the sociology department, Benny Bukowski, about this uh, recently. Benny said, and I, and I think he's right, that you know it's it's a bit of a myth to think that Wisconsin had this sort of uh, progressive golden age that lasted until Scott Walker, and then everything uh, sort of declined after that. Or you know, place place that turning point wherever you want. Uh, you know, in the 1990s and the 1960s and so on, there were there were actually a lot a lot of ups and downs. Uh, the Wisconsin idea was was explicitly challenged by political forces hostile to it as early as the 1914 gubernatorial election, which uh, brought in a conservative governor, swept out some of the aggressives in the legislature. And we see a sort of similar kind of moment in the 1930s. Again, there was a, a very conservative Wisconsin governor in the 1930s who uh, sort of has a, I would say, kind of antagonistic relationship with some aspects of the Wisconsin idea. There's a kind of recurring back and forth in the history of the state. That said, 
I do think that the changes that were introduced during the Walker administration were probably the most radical challenges to the Wisconsin idea that we have seen yet. Again, it's not to say that there were never any other challenges before. Again, the radicalism of those changes in the Walker years, and I think Walker himself would have agreed about this, you know, to be radical is to get to the root of the matter. And, and Walker certainly didn't want to get to the root of things. Uh, I, I think the radicalism of, of the changes that he introduced were really uh, arguably uh, the biggest challenge that we've seen to the Wisconsin idea yet. So I would, I would say there were challenges earlier, I uh, wouldn't deny that, uh, but uh, the challenges that we have seen uh, under the Walker administration, I, I think, are the most dire so far. And those challenges and that radicalism are all over the last three chapters of the book, which really go to the heart of the damage Walker and, and his cohorts did to Wisconsin and the university and the Wisconsin idea. There's a chapter, Laboratory of Oligarchy, which plays on Justice Brandeis's comments that the state should be the laboratories of democracy. There's Lewis Friedland has this excellent essay on, on the damage that has been done. Catherine Kramer's essay on precursors, her um, book, The Politics of Resentment. I can barely read about Act 10 because I, I spent a career implementing the collective bargaining laws that Act 10 abolished. So I take it personally. I know that you on, on the campus take it personally. How painful was it for you who has lived through the assault on the university and the Wisconsin idea to commission these essays and edit that part of the book? I mean, it's always painful to revisit uh, this recent history. It's a history that, as you said, began with Act 10, because uh, Act 10, of course, was an attack on collective bargaining rights for all public employees, but uh, it went furthest uh, with university employees. So uh, uh, it severely restricted uh, bargaining rights for most public employees, but for faculty, academic staff, and uh, teaching assistants, it, it, it simply took them away altogether. With Act 55 and 2015, that introduced a lot of the changes to the university that Walker uh, was promoting. Walker himself described Act 55 as an Act 10 for higher education. So he saw it as just as radical, just as far reaching uh, and its attempt to transform this uh, particular institution. So these chapters at the end of the book, uh, which as you say, uh, are really about the recent challenges to the Wisconsin idea and the, the social and the economic and the political conditions that help to explain those challenges, why we've seen those challenges and why those challenges happened when they did. I think those chapters are a really uh, important part of the book. Uh, there was some discussion when the book was in production. One of the uh, reviewers thought that maybe these chapters were not so necessary. Maybe the book would be better without them. In my discussions uh, with the editors at the uh, University of Wisconsin Press, I argued very strongly for the need to keep these chapters. I think for one thing, without these chapters, uh, it's really hard to answer the question of why is this book on the Wisconsin idea coming out now? Why do we need a new book about the Wisconsin idea? These chapters make clear why we need a new book about the Wisconsin idea. And you might say that these chapters, well, sort of end the book on a kind of pessimistic note. In some way they do because they make clear the, the depth of the challenges uh, that we faced in recent years. But I think in exploring the conditions that led to these assaults on the Wisconsin idea, they also have something to tell us about what kinds of conditions we would need to create or recreate uh, to uh, renew the Wisconsin idea going forward into the future. So there is a way in which we not just be demoralized by these chapters, but also be inspired by them uh, to work to renew the Wisconsin idea. And that's really, uh, I would say, the, the whole purpose of the book. The contributors to the book, we had the idea uh, that there needed to be a, a, a more robust, uh, broader, more far-reaching public discussion about what was going on, about how the Wisconsin idea was being challenged and undermined. And uh, if our elected officials were going to do that, uh, at least uh, the public needed to be aware of what was going on. And there had, there, we also felt that there should be a counter vision uh, that would be offered to people uh, so that they would see that this is not the only alternative or the only possibility. As I noted, uh, we both did our undergraduate work at a very small school in Sarasota, Florida. You are now a professor at a very large school in Wisconsin. Did the legacy of the Wisconsin idea have anything to do with your interest in coming to the UW? I, I wish I could say that it did. Uh, so when I came to Wisconsin about 20 years ago, I actually knew very little about the Wisconsin idea. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I have to confess that uh, it was not very important to, uh, or very central to the, the, the thinking and the research and the work that I was doing or the teaching that I was doing when I first came. 
And it was only after being here uh, uh, for, for several years uh, that I really uh, came to understand it better and came to appreciate it better. And, uh, and, and that process really started uh, under Scott Walker with Act 10 uh, and, uh, and then in 2015 with uh, uh, legislative uh, changes uh, that, were, um, uh, that were made to the university. And uh, it's at that point that I began to understand why so many faculty and staff at the university uh, see themselves as in some way custodians of the Wisconsin idea and felt uh, that it was something uh, valuable and that if uh, they didn't speak up to, um, to defend what was best about the Wisconsin idea, that uh, in that context, nobody else would. And that was very inspiring. And, uh, and if anything, um, those experiences, I think, um, strengthened uh, my sense of connection to Wisconsin uh, in a way that probably nothing else uh, could have done to the same extent. And you also got a new course and a book out of it. Yeah, and uh, there were many people involved in the course. And in fact, uh, you know, I, I did help with this, but there were many people involved. And uh, the person who was, uh, uh, I think, most responsible for that, uh, Patrick Brenzel, uh, was a staff member of the sociology department. I say was because he's retired now. Uh, he's also a graduate of the University of Wisconsin. He's somebody who cares very deeply about the Wisconsin idea. He sort of floated this idea at a, um, a sociology department meeting. Uh, saying, look, the Wisconsin idea is under attack. Uh, we should do something about that. Um, you know, th this is a university. We're educators. One of the things that we can do uh, is uh, create a public lecture series, a course uh, to really um, uh, talk about what is the Wisconsin idea? Why should we care about it? And why should we care that it's being undermined? And uh, uh, so, so he was really the originator of that, uh, of that project. Uh, many other people uh, saw the value in that and became involved. And of course, it was out of that uh, public lecture series and that course, which is, which is still going on. Uh, we've had it uh, every, every fall since uh, 2016. Um, it's out of that uh, that uh, this book arose. So the chapters of this book are almost all uh, based on lectures that were given as part of that public lecture series and course between 2016 and 2018. In 1908, President Elliott of Harvard University called the University of Wisconsin the leading state university. What will it take for the UW to reclaim that title? Yeah, I, I would like to see uh, the University of Wisconsin uh, become a leading university again, and, and leading in all kinds of ways, not just in the sort of standard metrics that university presidents often care about, um, but uh, in, in socially and uh, politically and culturally, I think I would, I would like to see this uh, as a leading institution um, in, um, uh, in promoting that sort of civic work, that civic education that Kathy Kramer talks about in her chapter in the book. Um, uh, I think she makes a very eloquent case uh, for the need for public universities to be involved in that kind of work. If, if uh, democratic institutions in this country, if uh, a sort of democratic political culture uh, is um, uh, really uh, really in a sorry state right now. And I think with the storming of the, uh, of the US Capitol uh, in January, we, you know, we, we saw just how, how sorry that, that condition is, how the situation is, not just in Wisconsin, but uh, throughout the country, then uh, it's really incumbent upon universities, public universities um, to be involved in uh, that work of uh, safeguarding and, and promoting uh, a kind of a civic culture uh, that revitalizes democracy. I think Kathy Kramer is absolutely right about that. She explores some of the, the challenges of doing that, but I think if the University of Wisconsin is really to become a leader again, uh, in this broad sense, it has to put that work front and center. We talked about Tommy Thompson as governor. He's now the interim president of the mm -hmm. University of Wisconsin. What, were you, what was your immediate reaction when he was appointed and now that he's been on the job a little bit, what are your thoughts on Tommy Thompson in academia? Yeah, I uh, initially I was a little bit worried because the book does include some criticism of uh, the new Wisconsin idea that uh, he was involved in promoting in, in the 1990s. So I had concerns about that. I would say that I, I do have some criticisms of uh, what he's done as uh, interim president. I'm a little bit concerned about, more than a little bit concerned, I, was, uh, I would say I'm significantly concerned 
about his support uh, for uh, some institutional mergers, which I think will be connected to uh, an ongoing effort to close academic programs in the liberal arts, not in Madison, but on the other UW system campuses. But I would say that he's done a better job than I, than I thought that he would, certainly a better job than Ray Cross. And the sort of 10-point program that he put out in August 2020, there's a lot of good stuff there. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that proponents of the Wisconsin idea uh, should support. And I do like that um, he himself has not been afraid to invoke the Wisconsin idea. He and I might have some disagreements about how precisely to define it and to understand it, but I, I do like that he's, he has uh, invoked the Wisconsin idea and advocating uh, for a stronger and better supported uh, UW system. He's not been afraid to ask uh, the legislature uh, to do that work. Uh, and I think that is in contrast to his predecessor, Ray Cross. Uh, Ray Cross, I think, basically uh, collaborated with Walker-appointed regents and with uh, Republican legislators to defund the university. And uh, so we're not seeing that with um, Tommy Thompson. I think he may get some things wrong, but his motive is to help the university. I think he believes in the university, loves the university, and wants to do what he thinks is right, as opposed to the other guys who didn't care about it. I, I agree with that. And, uh, you know, I, I was not uh, here when he was governor, but uh, from what I understand uh, from talking to colleagues uh, uh, who were at the university when he was governor, uh, they described him in a, in a similar way as you did just now. And uh, so that gives me some, uh, some reason for hope. And on that hopeful note, we close our conversation with Professor Chad Allen Goldberg about his book, Education for Democracy, Renewing the Wisconsin Idea, from our very good friends at the University of Wisconsin Press, because our hour is up. But you can hear more from Professor Goldberg when he comes to the Book Festival and the Madison Central Library, 1030, Saturday morning, October 23rd. And you should know that there are four big book festival events this week to tell you about. Tonight at 7, Ping Chen in a crowdcast video presentation of his debut story collection about the men and women of modern China and its diaspora, Land of Big Numbers. Tomorrow night at 7, in person at the Central Library, Melissa Phoebos with her new collection of stories, Girlhood. Thursday at 6, Bob Woodward and Robert Costa in a crowdcast presentation of their bombshell bestseller, Peril. And at 6 on Saturday at the Memorial Union Play Theater, the First Wave Hip Hop Ensemble and Mahogany L. Brown present the 15th annual Passing the Mic Festival into the multiverse. That is brought to us by the Book Festival itself and the UW-Madison Office of Multicultural Arts Initiatives. That is always a highlight. For more information on all those programs, wisconsinbookfestival.org. And as I said, next week on Madison Bookbeat, UW Professor Jordan Ellenberg, like Professor Goldberg, coming to the festival on October 23rd to discuss his new bestseller, Shape. The Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman and all of us here at Mass and Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. And now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison, listener sponsored community radio.